0: but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the at the book of Acts, and the, the book of Acts is really a story of ancient events, but a timeless mission. Now, the book of Acts was written by uh, a man named Luke, and Luke was is also responsible for writing the gospel of Luke that, that you have in your Bible, and it's really a sequel to the gospel of Luke. See, in Luke, um, the, the writer depicts the life of Jesus and he tells the story of how Jesus came and that how he, he lived his life and the, how he interacted with his disciples and how he died on the cross and how he was raised again. But then the book of Acts starts off and it picks up from that moment in history where Jesus has risen from the dead, but what is, what's going to happen next? What's this, this group of people going to do. And that that verse that you heard in the video is actually from the book of Acts, chapter 1, and it's the words of Jesus to a group of his followers. Now, the followers of Jesus at that time was only about 120 people. Basically, look around. I mean, Basically, it would be like Jesus telling you, telling this group of people, you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all of Judea and Samaria, in that whole region, and to the ends of the world. Now, friends, I want you to think about the significance of that, just for for a moment. I mean, look around the room. Can you imagine Jesus looking at a group like this and telling them, you guys are going to take the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth? I mean, here it is, uh, uh, you know, let's say 120 people, and they, they basically can fit in a room. They can fit into a room together, and here it is, Jesus saying these words, you are going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now friends, would we even be sitting here if Jesus was speaking to a group of people who didn't believe him? Would we even be sitting here today if the power of Christ wasn't powerful enough to change people's lives generation after generation, thousands of years later, here we are in Lingo, Wyoming. I would say that's pretty much the other side of the world from Jerusalem where he spoke those words, right? And here we are. Now, in chapter 2, we see kind of the first step of this explosion there's um, say 120 people and Jesus tells them you know you guys are going to change the world and when I leave I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you and when he comes he's going to give you power to accomplish this new mission and so the group of people they're just waiting around waiting for Jesus to show up in power and in Acts chapter 2 we read that ancient event of when the Holy Spirit came in power and we looked at that last week and and 3,000 people became Christians that day. Now, imagine if this group of people, all of a sudden, overnight, if it went from a group of 120 to a group of 3,000 people. Can you think about that? Can you imagine that? And as we pick up in Acts chapter 3, it's a group of 3,000 people and they're happy. Because at the end of Acts chapter 2, we read the condition of this group of people and it's incredible. It says that they they were together and they were praying together and they were encouraging one another and they were devoting themselves to one another and people were being added to their number daily as they were being saved. Alright, put yourself in that, in their shoes. What is the spiritual temperature of the church at that moment? Hot. Red hot. Red hot. I mean, it's what we dream about. People that are just so drawn to this group of people that they're, they have to know, what is this that's going on and how can I be a part of it? And it says that people were being added to their number daily as they were being saved. And so Acts chapter 3 opens, and the church has exploded, but it's in high spirits. Things are really good. The spiritual temperature is red hot. And today we're going to be reading about an account. And it's a pretty simple account, it actually carries over into Acts chapter 4. But today we're going to look at the event, and it starts off with this A man is healed. That's what we read about. Now I'm going to invite you to take one of the scriptures. Uh, A lot of these aren't going to be on the screen, so if you would actually physically take a Bible, there's uh, many underneath the, the chairs in front of you. And get that out and turn to the book of Acts chapter 3. It's on page 1079 in the Bibles that are under the chairs. And let's read this story. Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money, but Peter looked straight at him, as did John, and then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. And then Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong, and he jumped to his feet, and he began to walk. And then he went in, went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. And when all the people saw Him walking and praising God, they recognized Him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate, called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to Him. Isn't that an incredible story? No, I think there are a couple things that we can learn from this story, the first thing I think we can learn is that God is no longer confined to only working in the temple. God is no longer confined to only working in the temple. Now, when you think about this, this is pretty significant. Because the way that God has orchestrated in the past, in the, in, in the Jewish religious system, the way that God designed it and set it up, was the temple was to be the place where the Jewish people could interact with God. So if you were a Jew and you wanted to meet with God, you would go to the temple. If you, went to the, you, know, you needed something, God to show up in your life, you needed God to, to you know, work powerfully in your life, where would you go? You would go to the temple. But where does this event take place? Outside of the temple gates, right? Now, I think that's significant. Put yourself in the, in the shoes of this beggar for a moment. How long has this man been crippled? We read that. From birth. He's been crippled from birth. And how often does he sit outside the gate to beg? Every day. And how does he get there? Some of his friends carry him. We assume that, that, that they're his friends. Maybe he hires them to carry him from some of his wages that he's, that he's earning. I don't know. I want you to put yourself in the, in the position of this man. Uh, you don't know what it is to walk. Perhaps as you're sitting there outside the temple gate, you're seeing people walking into the temple and you wonder what that's got to feel like to walk. Been crippled since birth. You know, I don't know, it rings true even in our day today that when you rob a man of his potential to earn a living, to, to work, to be you know productive it's demoralizing to a man you can imagine this this man who has to his his only way to survive is to beg for the generosity of people who are going into the temple so this is a pretty sad situation right and i, I think it even gets a, a little bit uh, a, a little bit worse when you think about the the condition of the society and the especially the, the you know the, the common view Of disabilities in that age. In John chapter 9, we read a story where Jesus is interacting with a person who is blind from birth, and the disciples ask him this question. You can read about it in in John chapter 9. It says, As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that, that he was born blind? So can you see their their view of this man's blindness? They couldn't explain it necessarily medically. And so it it made sense that the reason that this man is blind is because he's suffering for the sin of his parents or of his own sin. But what does Jesus say about that? He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happens so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. You see, Jesus like, you guys are way out of, out of line here. You know, this is, this is all part of God's sovereign plan. You don't have to try and make sense of it. He's not suffering for anybody's sin. He is in this condition because God's going to be powerful in his life. And that's exactly what we see in the case of this man who is born crippled. God is no longer confined to only working in the temple. You see, as Peter and John go to the temple to pray and they see this man outside of the courts, the common view of the day would be we've got to get this guy into the temple so that God can do something in his life. But guess what? God is no longer confined to doing work only in the temple. The Holy Spirit has come and He's empowered the church to be the church. In other words, God didn't come just to, to to dwell into the temple. God came to dwell in people. And so this is an amazing story as Peter and John outside of the temple show this miracle of God in this man's life. And he's forever changed. And, and what's the response of the man that's healed? What's the response? Running, and it, running, running and jumping. Is this a... This is a natural response to anybody who has been longing their entire life to walk, right? What does walking feel like? What does jumping feel like? I don't know. And now he is what? He's walking and he's jumping as what? As worship. It's his response to the miracle that God has just done in his life. He's praising God. God has worked in his life. He's responding to that. It's his act of worship, But I think there's a second thing that we learn from this story. There's lots of things that we learn, but a second thing that I want to point out this morning is that God often works in our lives outside of our comfort zone. Now, I want to, I want to just point this out. What is the condition of the church as Acts chapter 3 opens? It's, it's exciting. We said it was, it's red hot. There's vitality, there's action, there's movement, there's things happening. Man, people are just fired up. But there's another word that I think we can throw into that mix when, it, when we describe the church as it, as it opens in Acts chapter 3, and that is comfort. It's comfortable. I mean, we haven't read yet that, that people are being dragged out of their homes, you know, and taken to jail for being a Christian. We haven't read yet that, that people are being stoned in the streets. We haven't read yet that, that anything bad's happening. It's like all this energy, all this excitement, all this good, but it's also very comfortable. There's no no real persecution that's happening at this point. And so it's in this context that Peter and John are walking to the temple. And I think they have a they have a choice to make, don't they? as they see this crippled man there outside of the gate. I think it's a significant choice. We could do something that's really going to make some waves. This is going to make headline news. This is going to draw attention. And guess what? It's not going to be popular if we do this. But when they saw the man, it says that they looked at him, And Peter opens his mouth and he says, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have, I want to give it to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And in that action, they're risking something. That's a risky statement, isn't it? That's a risky statement on a number of different levels. It's a faith-filled statement. I mean, there's a lot that he's risking with his reputation, with his faith, putting it out there on the line like that. But it's a risky statement from an organizational standpoint too. Because right now, they're stepping outside of this comfort zone where things are really good and you know it's, people are being added and there's lots of vitality and that kind of stuff, but now they're they are going public with this thing. They're stepping out there and causing controversy and, and you know, inviting people to, uh, to, to question what has just happened. It's a risky thing. You know, oftentimes we use this phrase, you know, you need to get outside of your comfort zone. You know, when I was, uh, for, for lots of years out of Rimrock, I taught rappelling. How many of you have ever been rappelling? It's kind of a scary thing, isn't it, the first time that you go rappelling. It's kind of a scary thing the tenth time that you go rappelling, because there's a moment when you have to lean back, over the edge, and it goes from the, the comfort and the safety of standing on a rock to having to trust a rope and a system and the person who's belaying you. It's a scary thing, right, to lean out over the rock. But if you can get past the first step, then every other step gets easier and easier all the way down, right? Until, of course, the rope kind of slips a little bit and you're like, <laughs> you know, I don't know how many times I've seen that expression from junior high girls as they rappel. There's a little bit of slip in the rope and they go, like that, and it's scary. In fact, it's kind of fun with middle school students because um, middle school boys are really easy to get to go rappelling as long as there's middle school girls watching. It's like no problem because they are not going to be that guy who's too scared to go rappelling, right, okay? It really is, it's funny, but that's the truth. Every middle school boy will go down if there's girls watching, but middle school girls are a little bit different. And I took it up, you know, you're sitting out on the rock and kids are going down and rappelling. And I took it as kind of a personal challenge to see if I could get even the most scared kid to go rappelling because I knew if they would just do it, it would have this huge sense of accomplishment, you know. And so when you try and negotiate with some kids, you, you discover that you have to talk their language or you have to identify what they're really afraid of so that you can get them to go down. Middle school girls, some of them are afraid of heights. And that's a natural thing, right? Some of you are just terrified of heights. And so the big thing that they had to you know, get past was not looking down. And so you would get them to the edge and it's like, just, just look at me, just look at me. Keep your eyes on me, okay? Now just take a step back, lean back, and then once they start going, they're looking at the cliff and they don't look down. They, pretty soon they get down, look up, and it's like, great, I did it. You know? okay, That's a pretty easy one. The other one is that, that oftentimes middle school girls will not trust the equipment. And so some of these are logical thinkers and you can say, well, look at this rope. This rope is tested at 2,500 pounds. It's not going to drop you. You weigh like 60, okay? It's good to go. You could throw a Buick over the side of this and it's going to hold, okay? And pretty soon they'd be like, okay, you know, you show them how the knots are tied and how they aren't. nothing's going to come undone and you can show them that other people are going down and it holds them just fine. And, you know, I've done this a lot of times. I'm qualified. I'm going to catch you, that kind of thing. And they go down. It's kind of a logical thing, but there's a, another one that's kind of scary, okay? And it's the girl that gets to the edge, and she is terrified of looking stupid. Do you know this? She's terrified that halfway down she's going to wet her pants. Halfway down she's, you know, going to slip and fall, and then she's going to have a scratch on her face, and then everybody's going to make fun of her. I mean, these, this is a tough one, okay? And so the way to talk that girl down is to tell her, can you imagine the feeling that you're going to have when you get to the bottom of this cliff and you've done it? Can you imagine going home and telling your parents, you know, I, I rappelled off a hundred foot cliff. And you speak these words of, of hope and you can do it and give them a vision of the future and they get to the bottom and they have this huge sense of completion. Now, all of us when it comes to this area of rappelling there's, there's a couple of places that you can land, okay? We know what it's like to be in the safety and the security of standing on top of the rock and having our feet firmly planted there and being in that place of comfort. It's easy. It's safe. I, I, I'm familiar with this. It feels good. I like standing on the rock. But if you live your life standing on the rock and never step outside of the comfort zone, what do you miss out what, what do you miss out on? You miss out on the adventure. Let's see. Now I think there are two two words here that describe what we're what we're seeing. One, the early church is in this area of comfort. Okay? Now they're also in an area of adventure. Things are happening. It's all, it's all fairly new to them. But often, when we, when we think about this in our own lives, we fall one in one place or another. It's kind of like a lava lamp. You guys know what a lava lamp is? Okay, some you yeah, have 70s, 80s, lava lamps. They're cool. They're kind of making a comeback. My daughter got one for Christmas, and I was thinking about this the other day. A lava lamp, okay? Um, a lava lamp works on heat, and uh, heat is applied down here to this lava. It's sort a jello, liquid stuff. And as the heat heats up the lava, it starts to move, and the, you, you start to see movement. Now, there's two types of heat. There's that direct heat, you know, that action that's happening, over here, but there's also this ambient heat. And as the ambient heat in the lava lamp happens, it, it raises, the ambient temperature in the lava lamp raises, what happens to the activity inside the lamp? Stuff's happening, stuff's moving, stuff's shaking. Now, I think, oftentimes, churches default inwards. You've heard that if you've been around here for, for any, any length of time. Churches default inwards. We tend to gravitate. The gravitational pull is towards comfort. We don't like that movement. We don't like the heat. And and so pretty soon, things start to cool off and the ambient, the spiritual temperature of the place starts to cool off. And when the spiritual temperature starts to cool off, what happens? What happens to the movement? What happens to the excitement? What happens to the, the stuff that you look at? and You say, wow, that's incredible. See, in the early church, the ambient temperature was red hot. It was red hot. Things are moving, and people are, their lives are being changed every day, and activity is happening, and nothing is the same. You look at it one minute, and it's just a little bit different because people's lives are being changed by the power of the gospel. And I think if Peter and Paul had said, you know what, that, this is good. This is good, you know. Everything that we've experienced up until this point, this is all good. But that's enough. What would have happened? The temperature starts to cool. You you lose some of the excitement. Pretty soon, what at first was really exciting and fresh, and it's like I've never experienced this before, it gets to be pretty routine. And the spiritual temperature begins to cool and the the natural gravitational pull is back to comfort. It's back to comfort. It's back to what we know. And friends, I'm so grateful for these guys like Peter and John who said, even though comfortable is easy, even though we like comfortable, even though comfortable is safe, We aren't comfortable with comfortable. God's not done yet. He's not done yet. And they step out and they pursue the adventure. And so this man is healed. And it's an act of faith. It's an act of courage. It's risky. And as a result of that, number two, a crowd is gathered. A crowd is gathered. Now this crowd gathers... Fairly naturally, I think you, if you were you know, just observing the situation, would probably be a part of the crowd. Listen to how it happened in verse 11. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. Isn't that neat? I mean, this crowd gathers over this miracle of God. Now, I think there's a lesson that we can learn from this act, from this event. And that is that the miracle is not just for the man. The miracle makes God known. The miracle is not just for the man. The miracle makes God known. Now, was God concerned about the guy that was begging outside that that, that couldn't walk? Of course he was. So was the miracle for him? Did God heal him because he wanted to heal him? Because he took mercy and, and compassion on this man and he wanted him to be healed? Yes, God healed this man. But it wasn't only for the man. It was to make the name of God known. God had been waiting. He had, he had prepared this time and place and this miracle was for a purpose. And I think I, need to, I, need, I think I need to remind you, you may know this at some, some level in your mind, but I think I need to remind you that the miracle that God did in your life, the miracle that He did in my life, is no less significant when He rescued us from sin, from death, when He called us into life and gave us life eternal. That event That moment in time is no less significant in your life and in mine than than this, this man who was crippled being able to walk. And friends, the same thing is true in your life and in mine, that the miracle is not just for the man. The miracle is to make God known. Did God save you for you? Yes, He did, and that was a miracle for you. That's a miracle for me. I'm so glad that God saved me. So glad that, that He rescued me. Listen to this verse from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. It says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that, he, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. You see, friends, the miracle that God does in your life and He does in my life is not just for you. It's not just for me. It's a statement of the greatness of God. It's a life changed as evidence of the Gospel and its power to work in our world. It's not something that's just for you. And don't hold on to it as if it were. Don't hold on to this this miracle that God did in your life as if it was just for you. It would be like the lame man getting his, getting his uh, you know, legs healed and then just walking home and sitting on the couch. I mean, he's jumping for joy and he's in the temple and he's, he's praising the Lord and it, 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 it's exalting, making loud the name of his Savior who has just rescued him. And friends, that's, that's the, kind of, that's the kind of passion that I want to see in my life. Where well, I can't contain it. God's done a miracle in my life and I have to share it to make the name of God known. So this crowd is gathered, but the third thing is that a sermon is preached. Anytime a crowd gathers and you know, the gospel is there, we're going to hear a sermon, right? Well, there's a sermon that's preached. And Quite honestly, it's a hard sermon. I'm not sure that this sermon would, would, would be preached like this today. I mean there's no funny illustrations, there's you know there's no you know, three points, there's no you know bulletin to, to fill out some fill in the blanks or nothing. But this sermon is preached and I want I want you to hear some highlights from it. The crowd gathers, verse 12, when Peter saw this, he said to them, men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our power, I'm sorry, uh, stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? In other words, they're clarifying where this power came from. It's not from us, it's from God. Verse 13, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified His servant Jesus. Okay, that's good. But listen to this sermon or message of accusation. Listen, he says, God glorified His servant Jesus. You handed Him over to be killed. That's, a, that's a sticking your finger. I mean, preaching 101, this is probably not a good idea. You're right? to... Accused people of murdering Jesus? That's okay. You killed Jesus and you disowned him before Pilate, and though he had decided to let him go, you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. Do you hear the tone here? It's a message of accusation, but then the, the tone shifts. And we start to hear glimpses of hope. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses of this, he says. Now now remember, this is only a couple of months after Jesus has been raised from the dead. You with me? This is a couple of months. Now, this is in the exact city where this is happening. So this isn't like, you know, know, we heard this from these guys over here. It's like, we saw Jesus raised from the dead. And you've heard about this event. It's kind of, you know, made the news or whatever. We saw it with our own eyes. And if you had any doubt or question about this, you could go and talk to the people who claimed that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And so he goes on in verse 16. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and you know was made strong. And it is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through Him that has given this complete healing to Him as as you can all see. Now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what He had foretold through all His prophets saying that His Christ would suffer. Now listen to this verse 19. Repent then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Now, we hear a a sermon of accusation, but a sermon of hope. And there's this Distinct contrast between the two because in one hand, he's saying, you murdered Jesus. You murdered the Holy One of God. So not only are you murderers, but of the worst kind. That's who you are. But then he turns around and he says, repent therefore for the forgiveness of your sins so the times of refreshing may come to you. Now I think there's a lesson to be learned here. And that lesson for you and that lesson for me is that there's only one way to reconcile the gap between the accusation and the hope. And that is grace. There's only one way to reconcile... You're the murderers of the Son of God, and if you repent, you turn to God, there will be times of refreshing in your life. There's only one way to reconcile that gap, and that is grace. You see, because the fact of the matter is, all of us are sinners of the worst kind. That's my state apart from Christ. I am the, uh, I'm a sinner of the worst kind. But Romans 3 tells us that though we were sinners, and sinners of the worst kind, Christ died for us. And there's this statement in Romans chapter 5, verse 8 that is so hopeful. It's so encouraging. If you don't have, have it underlined in your Scripture, I would encourage you to under, underline this Scripture because it is the, the answer to how to reconcile this gap between the accusation and the hope. It's the answer of how the people that were responsible for the murder of Christ can have freedom and forgiveness of their sin and can be reconciled again to God. Listen to Romans chapter 5 verse 8. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still what? Sinners. Christ died for us. So friends, the the message that Peter gives here, I mean, a powerful message at the beginning of the 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 church and its movement and its influence and impact in the world is the same message of hope and grace and forgiveness that we are still preaching to this day that has changed millions and millions of people's lives to the glory of God and will not stop. And it's the hope of the world today. And that is simply that sinners can receive forgiveness of their sins through one name and one name only. And that's the name of Christ. And anyone who believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Friends, that is incredible news. But another thing that we learn is that there are only two things that we can do with Jesus. We can reject or we can believe. That's the the challenge that Peter lays out here to this this group of, of onlookers. He simply says you can repent, which is a, a, a fancy word that just literally means to change your mind. You can change your mind about who Jesus is. You can continue down this road. You know that um, you believe that He... You know, is a heretic or that he was a lunatic or whatever you're currently believing about Jesus, or you can change your mind and turn to God. And guess what? There is forgiveness for your sins. But there's always a call to respond. There's, there's always a call to respond. Uh, Peter here says, change your mind about it. Repent about it today. He gives them this call to respond and I'm going to give you the call to respond here because I'm not going to... I'm not just going to assume that everyone in this room has chosen to trust Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And so if you're here today and you have not trusted Christ as your Savior, why not today? Why not today? If you realize and recognize that Jesus Christ is the way of salvation, the One who was sent from God and He died on the cross for you, believe in Him. And this same hope that, that Peter offers to this group that was responsible for murdering Jesus, he, he offers to you, never think that the sins that you have committed are so bad that you are beyond forgiveness. You see, Peter, Peter offers this invitation openly and I offer it openly to you today. There's two things that you can do with Jesus. You can reject or you can believe. Will you believe today? And Peter doesn't do anything crazy. He doesn't, you know, do anything out of the ordinary. And I'm not going to do that today either. I'm just going to simply ask, will you believe today? And if you need some more information or if you'd like to let us know about that, I'd love for you to mark that on your Connect card. There's a little area that you can say, I'd like more information about what it means to follow Jesus. You could mark that or you could write us a little note that said, Today, I trusted Christ as my Savior. Nothing would encourage our hearts here as pastors than to know that you made that decision today, and I'd encourage you to, to jot that down. The final thing that I think we learn from this passage of Scripture is that the church will always survive as long as people there are people who believe that God is not done yet. Friends, this is so encouraging because Peter and John, you remember that they're in this place of comfort and, and, and it's like God's done an incredible thing. There's 3,000 people and we're worshiping together and people are coming all the time and they're being saved. This is awesome. They could have said, let's take it careful out now. Let's not talk about Jesus anymore in public. Let's for sure not talk that He's raised from the dead. And let's, let's just play it on the safe side, let all this thing blow over, and then, you know, maybe later we can take this message to someplace else where people don't want to kill us when we talk about how Jesus was raised from the dead. But friends, Peter and John believed, I believe they knew that what they were experiencing was a good thing, but they believed that God wasn't done yet. They believed that it was worth risking. Their reputation worth worth risking their comfort. Worth risking the safety of what they have known to this point. To step out and say, I don't have silver or gold, but what I have, I want to give it to you. I want this to make a difference in your life. Like it's made a difference in my life. And they risked it and they stepped out. And the story continues into chapter 4, which we're going to look at in a couple of weeks, but I want to, I want to give you just a preview. If you look into chapter 4 and you look at verse 4, it says that, that, that Peter and John were arrested and they spent the night in jail and then the next day they were taken before the ruling council to be tried. And, but in verse 4 it says, many who heard the message believed and the number of men grew to about 5,000. So as a result of this miracle, as a result of this message, as a result of these men believing that God wasn't done yet and risking something to offer freedom and and, and forgiveness and grace to a man who was crippled, thousands of people became believers in Jesus that day and were saved. And friends, I know that, that there are many in this room who believe that God isn't done yet and as a church if we if we forget to take risks if we allow ourselves to not not feel the excitement and the energy of what it means to have the message of the gospel that we can freely give to people the spiritual temperature in this place will continue to cool to a place of comfort friends let's not Let's not believe that God isn't done with us yet. Let's, let's, not, let, let's not believe that, that God has somehow given up or that, that the glory days of this church, the glory days in your life, are the ones that were, were long ago. Do you believe that the best is yet to come? Are you in for the adventure? I believe that God isn't done with us yet and I believe that the greatest adventure in our lives is yet to come. I believe that. And I hope you do too. So we're going to close the service here this morning and I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and we're going to sing a final song and the the ushers are going to come and take up our offering. And I would please drop those connect cards in the offering plate. This is a time for those who call North Hills home to, to support our ministry here and around the world. But if you're our guest, please let the plate pass by and friends, um, join us next week. Uh, we're fired up about what the Lord's doing um, here. And next week you're going to hear a message on that. And then the following week we'll pick back up with Acts chapter 4 and see that God is an incredible God. Ancient events, but a timeless mission. All right. Would you stand at your feet as we close with this final song?